0: Hey, I'm Matt Ruby. And I'm Rob Kramer. And welcome to another episode of Hell and Wellness. And I am a
1: comedian, and I've got some experience in the wellness space, but Rob, you're, you're quite the expert.
0: I wouldn't go so far as saying I'm an expert, but thanks, Matt. I've been, I feel like, kind of an unguru. guru kind of like, you know... The guru chaser who doesn't really attach himself to the guru, but is really interested in all the things that the guru has to offer.
1: Maybe that's the highest form of enlightenment: is you have to accept you're just never going to be enlightened. My mother keeps telling me that. (laughs) Yeah, and we do this show to talk about health and wellness trends, and you know, in my mind, there's a lot of great stuff out there that really can change people's lives for the better that I've certainly experienced, and then there's also a lot of stuff that's just snake oil, and you know, it's tough to tell the difference between the two.
0: And we're going to explore a little bit of that. I mean, we both had some pretty profound experiences. We have. Some bullshit superficial experiences, of course. But uh, I'm excited about delving into what you found, what you experienced. And uh, I can give you a little bit of what I've been sort of up to the last 25, 30 years.
1: Sounds great. Let's delve. Let's do it. One note for everyone, we are not doctors, it's not medical advice. We're here mostly to entertain you and just to give our perspective on things. Before you do anything serious, check with a doctor. All right, the Impossible Burger. Now it's at Burger King. You've probably seen it it's all the rage in supermarkets and everything like that. Uh, read a little something. Impossible Foods uses genetic engineering to make ingredients that are essential to the taste and texture of its plant-based meat substitute, soy hemoglobin also known as heme and soy protein. And then that replaces the wheat protein and all that makes the patty taste like meat. I've had one. It tasted pretty good. I gotta be honest. You know, I felt it was better than most veggie burgers. But I do gotta say, if people love vegetables so much, just eat vegetables. You hate meat yet you just want to impersonate it so much. I don't know. It's like Nazis who love Woody Allen or something. It just doesn't add up for me. Of you hate this thing or you love it, because if you secretly love it and you got to g- jump through hoops and go to laboratories in order to recreate you know, the exact texture and the blood. They're trying to use beet juice to make the blood seem real when you bite into it. I'm like, I thought you guys hated killing animals, but now you want the reality of blood coming out of your veggie burgers. At the end of the day, I still gotta say, you know, Americans eat more than 200 pounds of meat each year. Like we got to do something about it. So I do feel on that level, like maybe we just need to trick Americans into eating vegetables.
0: Matt, I am impossibly in violent agreement with you. (laughs) Like this is just so much Silicon Valley bullshit. There are two companies, impossible burger and their competitor beyond meat. You know, I've eaten them. I got duped into it as well. I got seduced by it. I don't like eating meat. I do like the taste of meat from my childhood. And i got into eating it and then all of a sudden i started reading up on it, and i'm like this is freaking bullshit like to your point if you want to eat plants eat some plants i mean they're good it's plant protein and good source of vitamins and minerals and protein and stuff but have you ever actually compared the uh the calories the fat the sodium in a impossible or beyond burger uh with uh like an 85 percent lean ground beef it's unfriggin' believable. They basically four ounces of each, they all possible burger or, or ground beef, they all have like 240, 250 calories. But check this out. The ground beef has 80 milligrams of sodium. Take a guess. How many grams of sodium do you think the impossible burger has, Matt?
1: Uh, I have no idea. 5,000.
0: Well, you're you're certainly in the upper range, but 370. It's like four and a half times the amount of sodium, which totally fucks up the whole thing. I mean, and it's your point about like mimicking meat and blood. Like if you're a vegetarian, don't eat anything that mimics the thing you fucking hate. Just eat some vegetables, be a vegetarian. My sense is, and the thing that really gets in my craw about this, is that there's some really smart engineers in Silicon Valley who came up with a formula. They said, We can actually engineer and control a formula and the production to sell a shitload of a product that we can pump out in a lab that we can make infinitely for a little bit of money and sell it for a lot and go friggin' public and make a shitload of money. That's what they did, I think.
1: No, I agree with you. This was a nutrition director who wrote this. If you love burgers and you're opting in on the impossible burger because plant-based seems like the healthier alternative, I'd rather you go with the regular burger and enjoy every bite. The best option if you're cutting back on meat for sustainability's sake would be to have the amount of meat you're using in that burger and fill the rest with veggies, especially mushrooms. And I, I feel like she's getting at something there, which is just like portion size too. It's maybe you don't need the one third pound burger. I mean, I just feel like we're not actually making things healthier here. But I do got to say, maybe this is, we have to trick Americans into eating something that's not meat because we're destroying the environment and we're raising cows and their own feces and they're shot up with hormones and all this awful stuff. So I wonder if on that level, it is something that is a net positive for society.
0: So yes, my bottom line is meatless burgers, good for the planet, not so good for our health. I'm giving it a hell. I'm going to give it a well
1: just because I think uh, Americans, we need to be fooled. I think it's kind of like LaCroix, that sparkling water, which I'm sure is not healthy for you, but it's better than drinking Coke all day or Pepsi or Sprite. And so maybe the Impossible Burger is to meat as LaCroix is to Coca-Cola. So I'm going to give it a week well.
0: All right, a week well. Well, you know, guess what I'm getting you for your birthday? A year's supply of Impossible Burgers.
1: All right. Well, then I'll be super healthy and that'll show you.
0: Buddha. You heard of the Buddha? Here's a guy, he went on a whole journey, he went to find out the sort of nature of being, the nature of the mind, and he uncovered a practice. He uncovered a way of meditating. In his world, he practiced something called Theravada meditation, which really is associated with more Southeast Asian, sort of closer to the origin of original Indian form of Buddhism. Mahayana, which is another lineage of it, sort of spread north through Tibet and China. But basically, they're all looking towards the same purpose and the same goal, if you will, although it's a little bit dicey to be calling uh, this a goal when you're meditating. But the idea is to sort of uncover the true nature of oneself, the true nature of the mind. Is that enlightenment that we're talking about? Nirvana, what, what, one of those? Well, this is the tricky part. Nirvana and enlightenment are not really goals to be attained. The path is the practice. The goal is not the practice. So you get a little tripped up when you start thinking about it in terms of, is the goal here to become enlightened? I don't know, maybe. But if you put the time in, and I'm going to give you a sense of the meditation that I've been practicing for a while. Which is really, apparently, I have to take the lineage of teachers who've been practicing this for 5,000 years, and my teacher, uh, who's a man named S. N. Goenka, who flowed from this lineage of teachers all the way dating back to the Buddha, um, practiced something called Vipassana. Vipassana is simply a Pali-Indian term. Pali was an old kind of uh, origin of, of the Indian language. Vipassana means seeing things as they are, not as they appear to be. So what does that mean? Well, let's talk about the meditation. You sit on a cushion, on a Zafu, they call it. You sit quiet. You close your eyes. You follow your breath. You concentrate your mind. And then what you do is you observe either thoughts or sensations on or in your body as they arise and as they pass away. And you try to do nothing with them. You try not to react to them. You try not to attach yourself to the pleasurable sensations. You try not to have an aversion towards the uncomfortable sensations. And you also try to be so incredibly aware that you don't have any blind spots, any ignorance. And you sit there and you observe. And what happens, at least what has happened for me and some, as others describe it, you get into understanding at a physiological, at a physical level, the law of nature. You get to experience the law of nature as it is. Matt, is any of this making sense to you? uh i mean it is but like tell me more what you mean by the law of nature that we are simply made up of atomic energy we're made up of molecular energy we're made up of molecules and atoms and the essential nature of physics
1: and how does meditation get you there
0: so how meditation gets you there at least in terms of the the practice of vipassana is that we get the mind out of the way what causes suffering essentially is the nature of the mind. The mind are these thoughts. Thoughts are energy forms, as as one would describe it. But what we do with those thoughts quite often determines the quality of our life, quite often determines the suffering that we experience. I mean, suffering is a natural part of the human condition. Suffering is, right? Mm -hmm. It's something that we experience. But what we do with the suffering, what we do with the conditions of our lives, what we do with those thoughts will determine the quality of our lives, and Vipassana meditation or other types of meditations enable us to sort of turn the dials and sort of understand how it works at the cellular level rather than just at the mind level. Because the mind level, you know, the thoughts that we conjure up, the thoughts that we attach ourselves or have aversions towards or use them for or against ourselves or others are the tricksters. These are the things that actually create the suffering. And so what this does, and what the Buddha did, is he tried to uncover the nature of suffering, come up with a technique. That's all meditation is. It's a technique. It's not a religion. It's maybe been turned into Buddhism, which became a religion. But the technique of meditation has enabled us to uncover the nature of existence, the nature of the mind, the nature of the body.
1: Yeah, it's interesting for me because I've read a lot about Buddhism and, you know, kind of the idea of attachment and and dukkha and letting go of things and had been a big fan and like, oh, yeah, I think this is, you know, a lot of wisdom here and incorporated some aspects of it into my life. But I had never been meditating. I was just like, oh, you know what? I, I, I'm too antsy. I can't sit for 20 minutes and, and do nothing. It's, it's just not for me. And then I had a therapist who was based in mindfulness-based stress reduction. John Kabat-Zinn I think founded it and really what it is is sort of a way of making meditation more western and kind of like de secularizing it or whatever the right word is taking it away from buddhism and and just bring it into a, a therapy type environment and she convinced me eventually after a, you know quite a bit of resistance to go ahead and start meditating and I will say I understand why you want to dump on Headspace or Calm but I think for me Headspace was the first thing that actually stuck after you know trying to, to do it on my own and I feel like having a guided Meditation practice, especially in the beginning, is very helpful. Um, And then for me, it it did become a different level of awareness of how the practice of meditation does tie in with these larger philosophical concepts of letting go, of not being attached, of just sort of being present in the moment and, you know, some sort of uh, Zen state or however you want to describe it. But like that idea has been very notable to me in my life.
0: So, You know, you hit upon something that we all say when we first come to meditation. There's absolutely no way I can sit for 20 minutes, an hour and do nothing. Well, what's interesting is when I was first presented uh, by a friend with this notion that you could go on a 10-day silent meditation retreat, meditate for 11 hours a day, no talking, eyes eyes closed meditations. I was like, there's absolutely no way that I could possibly do that. And for most people, that would be the case. How could you possibly do something that you've never imagined doing? What's amazing is, is that not only is there not this notion of doing nothing, you are actually working in a very effortful way to observe doing nothing. And what I mean by that is meditation takes incredible focus, incredible concentration. So on a 10 day retreat, for example, the first three days are spent focusing the mind on the breath at the tip of the nose, as it comes in, as it goes out. Why? In order to focus and concentrate the mind so that when you go into, in my case, the practice of Vipassana, and you're observing just sensations as they're coming on or in your body, you have the focus of attention to do that. I am not somebody who actually discredits Headspace and Calm. In fact, the person who created uh, Headspace, Andrew Hudicombe, was a Buddha. He was a monk for about three years, and it was out of that experience that he came up with the idea of doing Headspace. The challenge with Headspace is that it is a business which is predicated upon saying to people, if this is all you do, this is all you need. And oh, by the way, give us some money on a monthly basis to make sure that we actually can go raise our next $25 million in our Series C or Series D. That's a problem for me because meditation has nothing to do with making money meditation is and should be available to everyone.
1: And I totally get where you're coming from. And I feel like what you're tapping into is like an American cultural problem, or maybe it's throughout the West, this resistance to the true essence, maybe, of what this sort of meditation practice would be and how we have to make it sort of these bite-sized pieces. It needs to be an app. We need It needs to feel like a video game. Google wants to bring meditation people in so you feel okay working 120 hours a week. And it's going to make you more productive. You should meditate as a productivity hack so. Some ways we're missing the forest through the trees and so i get totally where you're coming from but on some level i wonder if it's almost like has to be that way to to slip it into american culture to get like a lot of people who are just going to see the word buddhist and be like yeah i'm catholic i don't need that
0: 100 percent. and i think that look i don't even i don't call it buddhist meditation or what i do actually even though it the its origins are from the buddha the ism part of buddhism has nothing to do with the buddha it's like the christianity part of christ Likely probably had nothing to do with Christ. The point is, is that once you place a goal, losing weight, reducing stress, finding love, you actually do miss the forest for the trees. You miss the experience of what simply observing the breath, observing the sensations, observing the thoughts without doing anything, seeing things as they are, not as they appear to be. And so, what I think the Sad part about the headspaces and the comms are to your point, Matt, they get people into the room to try out something they perhaps had resistance towards or would never try before. But they don't take you through all the way into the rest of the house. You like walk into the foyer, and they're like, This is it. This is, the, this is all there is.
1: Yeah, I would almost call it a gateway drug or a gateway anti-drug, gateway meditation, whatever. however you want to frame it. But yeah, I had done uh, Headspace for a couple of years and then went on a silent meditation retreat where it was, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, I've been meditating. I can handle this. And all of a sudden, when I had to do it for eight hours a day in, in an intense way, it was definitely like a, a game changer kind of experience. I was like, well, this is not something I've ever done before. But, you know, like sometimes there needs to be the shallow end of the pool. So, you know, like if it, if it gets people into the pool, at least I, I feel like that's a good step in the right direction. A question I have for you, I've never done TM, transcendental meditation. Is that similar? Is it completely different? Do you feel like all these things are swimming in the same pond and so it's, uh, we can talk about them the same way or there, there's a radical chasm between them?
0: Well, there is a bit of a radical chasm. I mean, they all are some form of meditation. My challenge with TM, uh, besides the fact that TM has been overly commercialized, by one, David Lynch, the famed director of Blue Velvet, who is a big TMer, is uh, you pay for a mantra. So TM is mantra-based, and mantras, and supposedly everyone's got their own personal mantra. No two mantras are alike. I, I have a little bit of an issue with this. You know, you, I think it was a point where you paid $1,200 for mantra. Maybe now it's $1,000 a mantra. That's a little bit of a crazy idea for me. But the idea of the mantra is kind of like concentrating the mind. It's kind of like those first three days of the meditation where you're. Focused on your breath. Amazing. Focus the mind. Get out of the cycle, the monkey brain that keeps going around. But if that's all it is, and oh, by the way, the mantra becomes this, this thing, this object, uh, this badge of honor, my mantra that I paid $1,000 for, and that becomes the object of your attention, you're going to devolve into the mind even more in my view and experience of it.
1: Yeah, no, I hear you. I mean, I feel like this is a topic we're going to be coming back to a lot in in various ways and from different angles over the course of the podcast, but uh, it's uh, definitely like an interesting one that's a game changer for people.
0: And so I would say, look, you know, if you've ever thought about meditating, if you think meditation's not for you, give it a try, perhaps like Matt, dip your toe into it, do a headspace. I totally advocate for that. But if it's something that you think might give you relief from the thoughts or the suffering in your life, go a little deeper, perhaps go on a three-day retreat, perhaps go on a 10-day retreat if you're, if you're ambitious, but stick with one form of meditation and stick with it for a while. For me, meditation is not only a well, meditation is the fabric and the journey of wellness for my entire adult life. So I can't speak more highly of it.
1: Well, wow. yeah, and I agree with you. I think it's a practice. So you've got to figure out what's the way that you can do it where it's sustainable, I think is super important. I would also say I think in the beginning, guided meditation is super helpful to just, you know, go sit in a corner for twenty minutes on your own and think you're gonna just nail it out of the gate is gonna, you know, really be missing the point. And you know, it's one of those things where the idea that, you know, depression and anxiety and illness and so many other things, how we handle them can be dealt with through meditation. Before I did it seemed a bit of a fanciful and an exaggeration. But as I've come to make it a practice in my life, I can understand what you're getting at is something so much more depthful. It's about how your whole brain works and your brain and your body relate to each other. And yeah, it's been a a beautiful thing in my life too. So I'm, I'm with you. Well, So this is a review of the show, Unwell, on Netflix, and here's the intro that they use for each episode so you get a taste of it.
2: Wellness, a global industry worth trillions of dollars. Does it bring health and healing? Or are we falling victim to false promises? Are we really getting... Well...
1: Mm, Such new-agey music. So exciting. Um, And basically, it's a six-episode series. Each one's about an hour, documentary-style. They go over... Uh, a few different topics: essential oils, tantric sex, breast milk as a means of uh, getting healthy or something, fasting, ayahuasca, and beasting therapy. And they really find a bunch of kooks, and then also you know some serious people who are doing a you know what seems like good work. And uh, it's interesting; they really try to tell a comprehensive picture of these various topics. But like I said, there's definitely you know some snake oil salesmanship going on. Here's one guy, and what he is trying to do is sell essential oils, and he's got this whole sort essential oil church pyramid scheme thing going on. I can't even describe it. Let's listen to him. We keep our prices so
0: affordable. I mean, our most expensive masterclass is $77 for digital access. Like anyone can afford that. Even if you're on food stamps, government assistance, hey, stop drinking Starbucks for two weeks in a row and there's 75 bucks, right? That's our masterclass. And I want you to join me on this journey. I believe God has a solution for you. I actually consider Natural Living Family a for-profit ministry. And the stories that we get are amazing. People medical failures that are just suffering with anxiety and depression and panic and cancer. And they're like, I stumbled. I stumbled. I heard that how many times? I've stumbled upon your stuff. No, you didn't stumble. God directed you to my stuff. God knew what you needed, and he showed you.
1: And guess what? The solution is essential oils. And people on food stamps should be buying essential oils with their... $77, which also, by the way, anytime someone's using the example of like, well, just stop going to Starbucks and then you'll be able to afford, like, uh, okay, you know what? I I don't drink coffee. I've never been to Starbucks. I should be a millionaire by now if that's the path to wealth and fortune. But you know what? Let let people on food stamps have a goddamn cup of coffee. They got to go to multiple jobs anyway.
0: And anytime that someone actually uses God and Starbucks in the same sentence, I've got a feeling they want to be both God and as rich as Starbucks.
1: Definitely. Well, this guy totally has that vibe. And you you start to see that a little bit because a lot of these subjects within this documentary series they're coming from a place of like past trauma or addiction or something. And we see this a lot in the wellness space where you've got a lot of people who, Oh, maybe this person has a great idea. Maybe they have a solution. Maybe they are sort of preaching something that would be beneficial to people. And then you dig a little deeper and you're like, Oh, or maybe this person is coming from a place of trauma or is a former addict or is just sort of like masking something within themselves that they're sort of still dealing with maybe on some level, but you know, are they taking advantage of the other people who follow them?
0: And I really, I don't mind the people that are actually on their own exploration, and they're using these modalities to actually find their way forward, and they want to help people. However, if you look at some of these folks, it just seems like what they're really good at is their master marketers. They're fucking unbelievable marketers. You could sell potatoes as the next sort of, you know, cancer healing agent. And if you're an amazing marketer, you're actually going to convince a bunch of people that you know, eating potatoes are are the way to go.
1: I do think potatoes are good for you. Maybe don't fry them, but literally there are pyramid schemes that we're talking about in the essential oils episode. So it's definitely uh, a, a bit hazy. Uh, let's play another clip. This one's from the tantric sex episode and it's a woman who's in Mexico and does these tantric sex clinics.
2: Tantra is not about a sex technique. Tantra is about how you relate to your own body, how you relate to life. And how you dance with it. As funny as this sounds, I am Tantra. <laughs> Taposlan is a small village in Mexico. It's actually called Pueblo Mágico, which means magic town, magic village. And it's looked at as an energetic vortex. It has a very powerful energy to it, a very transformative energy to it, and it's surrounded by these mountains where there's also pyramids, and there's also a lot of UFO sightings. I have not seen any, although I have spent many nights on that rooftop hoping to see one. (laughs) Some people are great at painting, some people are great musicians, some people are great cooks. I just happen to give people full body orgasms.
1: And I got to say, she actually does work with uh, a client in in that episode that seems fairly legitimate and helpful. But I want to zoom out from trying to judge essential oils or tantric sex, because, you know, who knows, maybe we'll tackle those on a future episode. And just talk about this actual documentary series as a whole, because I think they're doing a disservice to viewers by trying to be even handed. It's like this classic sort of both sides where where there is no narrator. They're trying to not be judgmental. They're trying to show people who are legitimate and journalists. And then they're also showing people who are clearly like selling snake oil and people who've had trauma and you're not sure if you should trust them. But without that sort of narrative point of view or an editor, everything kind of is equalized. And it's sort of like this both sidesism that we see in journalism a lot right now, where I think it kind of gives too much credibility to a lot of the BS that's being shown within these episodes. And to me, that's the biggest problem here is that there isn't someone to be like, no, this is dangerous, or no, that guy's ripping you off, or or, there's something wrong going on here, and maybe you should be suspicious of it. And their desire to sort of be even-handed, to me, is a big problem with the show overall.
0: I would agree. I would say it's kind of of like the vending machine approach to sort of spirituality and elixirs and methodologies. It's kind of like if you've got a vending machine and like half the machine is like orange juice and half the machine, you know, good juices for you. Half the machine is, you know, sodas. And the other half are like poisonous prescriptions in a bottle and everything is appearing to be of the same quality. It's a bit of a problem, but uh, I don't know i think that they're 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 pushing for something uh, an audience that just sort of subscribes to just tell me what i can do to help myself through a particular physical emotional or spiritual ailment.
1: And I think it's a more playful sort of approach. That might be something that I could tolerate a little bit more, but you have a teenager with severe autism issues, you know, a guy who's sexually abused as a child and sort of different things that I'd be a bit reluctant to just show this show to the public. In fact, I think even the title of it, which is Unwell, but the un is in parentheses, represents the entire problem with the series. It's like, okay, we're not saying this is wellness, but we're not saying it's not. It's unwell, parentheses, kind of. And I'm like, I don't know. That seems like uh, you're taking kind of a flippant tone when you're presenting stuff that I bet a lot of people are taking seriously.
0: Yeah, I also think that there are so many aspects to many of these practices that if you look back to the origin of the practices in their indigenous worlds, Mm -hmm. these are in practices that are embedded in cultures. They're embedded in the way of life. What happens in America especially and Netflix is a particular sort of manifestation of what happens in America from a media perspective is that we sort of package and market and sell these things as things that you can just pluck off the shelf. Like you pluck, you know, Colgate toothpaste or Tide detergent. It's like, try this out. It's Tide pods. Try this out. It's tantric sex. It's essential oils. And there is no opportunity, especially when you experience in these types of shows to say, well, what does it mean to actually practice tantric sex? I have no relationship to that in my life. If I'm just being introduced to it through a Netflix documentary series, I, I don't know what to do with that. And by the way, what I might do with it might be particularly dangerous.
1: And also I am a big ayahuasca fan. Spoiler alert if we talk about it on a future episode, which I assume we will. Uh, I did actually think the ayahuasca episode was really well done, the best of the bunch. But even that sort of aggravated me to see ayahuasca listed next to bee sting therapy and breast milk as, you know, sort of equal concepts that someone should consider for their health as someone who's had very powerful ayahuasca journeys is really like something even that kind of set me off a little bit but i will say the ayahuasca episode i thought dealt with it in a depthful way that was kind of handling all the aspects of it without it being like a lot of the times people will go to scare tactics and stuff and i thought they did a good job of like kind of navigating the path on that one episode at least
0: so i'm i'm curious about that though matt if you were somebody that was into beasting therapy, <laughs> would you have actually had that same response to the beasting therapy episode as you did the ayahuasca episode?
1: It's possible, but I mean, I guess my counter would be is there are thousands of years of beasting therapy wisdom and ancient cultures that have relied on it and ceremonies and rituals and hundreds of thousands of people around the world who have benefited from it. If there are. I am unaware of it and, you know, need to be educated more. But if there aren't, I don't think those two things should be put in the same category, personally.
0: How popular do we know that this, uh, this documentary series is?
1: Netflix doesn't reveal any numbers. I think what they want is buzz, and we're talking about it, so victory for Netflix already.
0: It feels like each one of these episodes could be its own two-hour documentary. And maybe that's the point. Maybe they're actually going to spin that out and they're just going to wet people's appetite, which is particularly uh, Western but like you I'd like to see them go a little bit further and not be so superficial and be a little bit more mindful about how they present this stuff.
1: I agree with you and I think you know when you elevate snake oil salesmen to ancient rituals, you know plant medicine and put them together in the same bucket and don't provide any editorial judgment or guidance for your viewers, I think you're doing them a disservice. So I'm going to go ahead and call
0: unwell hell. I am uh, I am right there with you. Unwell is hell. Thanks for listening to Hell and Wellness. I'm Rob Kramer. And
1: I'm Matt Ruby. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and you can leave voice messages for us at anchor.fm slash hellandwellness. And you can email us at
0: helenwellness at gmail.com. And please don't forget to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media.